Romans chapter 12 tonight. Now, let's go back to the original acronym that we began with on the very first page, a little thing we did with, the, with Romans, the, the six letters of that word. And you'll remember the R is chapters, uh, chapter 1, and that's talking about the cross. And the O is the ditch. That's chapters 1 through 3. The M is the road. That's chapter 3 through 5. And then the A is the plan. That's chapter 6 through 8. The world is chapters 9 through 11. And we just finished that. And that was your uh, heavy-duty prime rib T-bone theology, all about sovereignty and foreordained and chosen and elect and all of that. And now we're entering into chapters 12 through 16, the S part of Romans, and that's the kingdom. This has everything to do with living out uh, the will of God uh, for every believer. That's what we're going to be talking about. Paul is getting very, very practical here. And so the cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, and the kingdom. And so we're on the final stretch in Romans, and I'm going now to chapter 12, part 12, and if you'll turn there with me, you'll see living sacrifices, living sacrifices. And so let's begin. For the last three chapters, we've seen Paul's intense burden for his own countrymen, and we've looked at the history of God's sovereignty in dealing with Israel, having dealt with the principles of the gospel and the problems of the gospel, he now deals with with the practice of the gospel in the lives of Christians, how to hammer it all out, how to live it out, walk it out, how to live this Christian life successfully. And this is very typical of Paul's teaching. Uh, In the epistles that he wrote, uh, belief is followed by behavior, doctrine, and deeds. And so the discussion of the spiritual life of the Christian is in two parts. First, Paul deals with the Christian as a believer, And then with the Christian as a brother. Now his challenge to the believer has to do with something really, really important. And that is the believer's body. Which Paul now reveals to be the ultimate key to the practice of the victorious Christian life. You know, it's a very little value to know the truths of Romans 6 through 8. All right? If the body is not surrendered so the life of Christ can be expressed in the everyday affairs of life. So Paul now is taking us to the doctrine of surrender. We love to sing the song, I Surrender All. Um, but you know, that's way easier sung than walked out. And that's what we're about to see. God beseeches the believer to literally make a presentation of his body to God, not by coercion, but because it's the proper thing to do. Let's read verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the reasonable thing for you to do. Now, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, we need to look and see what it's there for. Because therefore indicates that something really important has preceded what you just read. So in this case, it's a very simple explanation. God has saved us from our sin, from its penalty, and from its power. Thank God. And he has saved us from ourselves. 
in all of its features and forms, from our fallen uh, nature. He has saved us from that, all right? He has overruled the destinies of nations. He has triumphed in his grace and multiplied his mercies. He has, as it were, besieged us, chased us down, and literally overwhelmed us with his mercies, with unmerited favor. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't, uh, you know, go jump through a bunch of hoops to get it. No, God gave grace to me because God decided to give grace to me. So therefore, he beseeches us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices. It's the proper thing to do in light of everything that God has done for us. It just makes total sense. Well, if he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for me, the very least I can do is present my own body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And it's not only the proper thing to do, but it's, it's the very practical thing to do. It makes possible the practice of the principles found in Romans 1 through 8. God wants us to live a holy life in the home and on the highway, at the counter or at the desk. The link between the two is a presented body. So I want you to listen very carefully. This is so important. I, I, I truly believe most Christians miss this. Most Christians never deal with this. Uh, more Christians than not have never thought this through, that Christianity won't work if we don't do this. Christianity, uh, the working out of it, the living it out, the walking in victory, the being filled with the Spirit, crucifying our flesh, being obedient to God, living for God. None of that is possible without a presentation of our bodies, our bodies. And as believers, we can live our lives out on one of three levels. And, and listen carefully now, because these are three kinds of Christians, sensual, soulish, or spiritual. As believers, we can live our lives out in one of those three ways. We will live them out in one of these three ways, sensual, soulish, or spiritual. For instance, let me, let me uh, clarify this. A person who is ruled by the physical is sensual. They're sensual. To be sensual doesn't mean that, that we live continuously in the worst forms of physical indulgence, like some kind of a hedonistic lifestyle. It simply means that we are believers who are still ruled by the senses. On the other hand, it's possible for us to be soulish in our expression of the faith, uh, to be ruled by our intellect, by our emotions, or by our will. Now, this, may, this person might be a walking encyclopedia of Bible knowledge, but when you get to know them, you don't find much spiritual fruit. They know the Bible inside out, but they're really not producing much fruit. Well, what's that about? Well, they're soulish Christians. Or they might be totally emotion-driven. This person is always looking for the next emotional high. He or she gravitates towards emotional experiences, goosebumps, the latest spiritual fads. You know, let, let something begin to happen in some church in the area and, you know, some new, quote, move of the Spirit and everybody runs to it because they're emotion-driven. They're looking for the next Holy Ghost bump. 
They're, they're looking to have their spiritual senses tickled and, and excited. And, and so they live in this emotion-driven kind of Christianity. And then on, the, on the other hand, a believer might have a, a literally an iron will. He or she may be great at making hard decisions like throwing away cigarettes or giving up alcohol or walking away from pornography or breaking some kind of addiction. Uh, indeed, a believer may have two or even all three of these factors, intellect, emotions, and will. So on the outside, they look like exemplary Christians, but at the same time, they may not be truly, genuinely spiritual at all. Are you getting this? It's really a subtle trap. And as a pastor of many years, I'm going to tell you, I've seen a lot of people in it, and I have probably bordered on some of these, these areas myself, all right? Now, to be truly spiritual, the Holy Spirit has got to have complete control of us. And the key to this lies in the surrender of the body. The phrase, be filled with the Spirit, means be controlled by the Spirit. But for that to happen, we've got to give our bodies fully to God. If the Holy Spirit has control of the body... He's got control of all of us, the whole man. The intellect, the will, and the emotions will all be controlled by him. Then the person is a spiritual Christian expressing in all of his ways the beauty of the Lord. So we want to be a spiritual Christian, not sensual, not soulish, not sense-driven, not soulish, emotion-driven, or the iron will kind of person that doesn't bear much fruit. We want to be the spiritual Christian that brings forth fruit and manifests the beauties of the Lord. So we're told that the presentation of the body results in a transformed life. Now, if I were to get a raise of hands, I can't see it this time, but if I were to ask for a raise of hands, I'd say, how many of you want a transformed life? And I know that virtually every hand in this sanctuary would go up. We all want a transformed life because that means we're more like Jesus. So watch this. We don't worship the body like the Greeks, okay? We don't. They glorified the body in their sculptures, in their Olympic games. The Greek culture was all about the beauty of the human form. And nor do we crucify the body like the ascetics who thought the body uh, to be evil because they didn't separate uh, flesh from the fallen nature. You know, this the body itself is not evil. The fallen nature is what gets us into trouble. But ascetics in uh, history gone by, uh, ages gone by, they just thought that the body w was evil. So they would abuse their body. They would starve it. They would mutilate it. They would fast constantly. They wore um, really rough clothing, knapsack kind of stuff um, that, that was just really, really uncomfortable to the skin. They did all of that believing that if they just um, treated the body badly, they were repressing sin. But they didn't understand you don't kill sin that way. You kill sin by walking in the Spirit, not not. Um, harming your body. Now, we simply, as believers, we don't do any of those. We consecrate the body, all right? We don't worship it. We don't abuse it. We consecrate it. 
So that the Holy Spirit, who has made, made it his temple, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, might have free access to all of its courts and free control over all its activities. Now look what he says. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now let's talk about this powerful word, conformed. The word conform refers to the act of an individual assuming an outward expression that does not accurately represent who he is within himself. Now, I love J.B. Phillips' translation of this verse. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. You know, each and every day that we wake up, the world out there, the fallen world, the godless world is seeking to teach us to train us, to force us, to squeeze us into its mold every day. Television, radio, magazines, books, uh, out in the workplace, out on the streets, people's words, people's ideas, the books at a bookstore, you name it. Uh, The world from every angle is constantly pressing in on the believer to get us to believe the way it believes, live the way it lives, um, have the the worldview that it has, and to not be conformed into the image of Christ. And so that's what we mean when it says the world. Be not conformed, squeeze into the world's mold. It means the condition of humanity, which since the fall is in spiritual darkness, with a nature, tendencies, and influences controlled by the powers of darkness in opposition to God, and now under the prince of this world. That's what we mean by the world. Not the beautiful creation, but this present evil world system that is uh, run by the devil. The world has its fads. It has its fashions. And they continuously change. And its mold exerts pressure on all of us, dress and diet, um, And far more serious areas like morals, ethics, religious beliefs, gender, sexuality, um, how you're going to live out your sexual life, your ethical life, your philosophical life, your worldview. All of it is, is the world is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. He says, don't do it. The world is the devil's lair for sinners, but it's the lure for saints. And it is human life and society without God. That's basically what the world is. Human life and society minus God. The believer whose body has been laid on the altar of God will not be conformed to this world. No, because we don't own ourselves and the world doesn't own us. And we owe the world nothing and we owe God everything including our body, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, in your body and in your spirit, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. So the believer whose body has been laid on the altar, the Lord, I present my entire body to you, will not be conformed. He's morally changed. His life is not molded from the outside, but it is transformed on the inside. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to look at this word transformed. It's too powerful to walk past it. The word transformed 
occurs only in three other places in the entire New Testament. And it is used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus. Do you recall on the Mount of Transfiguration? It says he was totally transformed in front of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, there on that mount. And he, he became like a shining sun. He was utterly transformed. There's the word. I believe the Greek word is uh, metamorphuo. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's metamorphosis. It's used to describe the glorious change wrought in the believer when he steadfastly contemplates the Lord Jesus. That's another one of his usages, all right? It's the word from which, from which we get metamorphosis. The dictionary definition is change of form or change of character. The best example is the caterpillar that undergoes a total change from the time it enters its cocoon uh, to when it emerges, a beautiful butterfly it goes in there, crawling on X number of legs. It's a, it's a caterpillar. It's not particularly beautiful. It's a bug. It's an insect. And uh, it's, it's, it, it crawls, it weaves that cocoon around itself. And while it's in that cocoon, it literally becomes a gel, uh, gelatinous, I think is the word, gelatinous, something like that. It becomes gel. It becomes liquid. It, it literally loses its form for a little bit, and then it undergoes a complete and total metamorphuo, metamorphosis. And when he comes out of that cocoon, we do not see the same insect coming out as went in. Matter of fact, totally different. Now he can fly. Now he has these beautiful wings. He can do now what he could never do as a caterpillar. He can lift off and fly freely in the air. And the idea is that before we're saved, we're like that caterpillar, just living to eat. The caterpillar just chews leaves. That's all it does. Goes from one leaf to the next, eating, 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 living for itself, feeding itself. Goes into the cocoon. And that is the idea of being born again when it comes to the believer. And when he comes out, he's free to fly, whereas before he was bound to the earth. And we are now free from sin, free from ourselves, uh, that is the old fallen self, and free to fly in the liberty of God. All right? That's the idea. He said, don't be conformed to this world. That's, that is really second rate. Be transformed. Become a butterfly where you're free and flying in the heights and reaching heights you would never have reached if you hadn't been transformed, all right? Now, it is said that the face is the index of the soul. When a believer truly dedicates his or her body to the Lord, uh, then seeks the Lord throughout life, uh, the imprint on their face cannot be matched by max factor. No, no, no. You know that Abraham Lincoln once uh, was asked to appoint a certain man to a high government post. And Lincoln said, I don't like his face. I don't like this guy's face. But surely, said the petitioner who wanted this man appointed, the man isn't responsible for his face. But Lincoln replied, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. I believe that's true. I believe that sin contorts the face. Uh, etches its imprint on the face, hardens the face. And uh, you can look at some people's faces that have lived in sin their whole life, and they literally look evil. They look evil. 
But if you walk with Christ, if you walk with God, and you're full of the Spirit, and you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, I really do believe it etches itself onto your features, onto your countenance, onto your face. And then Paul says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen to those three descriptions of the will of God. It's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. Every Christian is responsible to discover for himself what is God's will for his life. And Paul's point is, uh, we're never going to know God's will for our life if we don't present our body. That is a prerequisite to knowing God's will. Present your bodies, therefore, a living sacrifice, that you may know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Uh, as we spend time with God in a consecrated life, we're going to discover first his will for us is good. What God plans for us is the best that omniscient wisdom and divine love could ever conceive. And we're also going to discover his will for us is acceptable. God will not ask us to do that which we cannot accept. He brings us along life's path, maturing us as we go, so that when we come to Canaan and its giants, we are ready for them. And we finally discover that God's will for us is perfect. It is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. No plan of ours can improve on the plan of God. Are we as human beings, you know, Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. In other words, here's the Apostle Paul, uh, the recipient of so much revelation. But he said, I'm telling you on my best day, I only see life through a darkened lens. I don't see it like God sees it. I don't see it perfectly. We see it in bits and pieces. But in the end, we're going to look back and say, his way for me, it was good. It was acceptable. And it was perfect. What a beautiful thing about the will of God. Now, verses 3 through 8, I say through the grace given to me to everybody who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, pay close attention because he's now going to deal with the gifts of the Spirit. He goes on in verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 6, here comes a delineation of the gifts. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. Verse 8. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, that's powerful. He begins with a warning. Now, notice that it's a warning on the consequences of pride. So we're backing up now uh, to the first verse we read, verse 3. We're backing up to verse 3. He begins with a warning. We better watch out. Uh, that we don't start thinking that we're better than others, but rather we're all members of one body. So having talked about the gifts, he, he warns about pride. You know, a spiritual gift comes from God, not from us. That's his point. They were to think of themselves with sober judgment, not 
be enamored with themselves because of the gifts that may be operating in their life. Uh, Paul makes it clear that each member of the church has been given a measure of faith by God. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. So who can brag? The body of Christ, says Paul, is like a human body with all its members performing various functions. Uh, how can you brag about something that you didn't come up with it? It's not from you or of you or by you, but it's from above. It was a gift. So you can't go around strutting in pride over something that was given to you. It's a gift. So he says, consider yourself in a lowly fashion. Never overestimate who you are. Watch out for the devil of pride, all right? He's talking about unity in diversity is the important thing. That's the theme that runs throughout this section. The Christian faith is not for lone rangers. My finger is not a lone ranger. My foot is not a lone ranger. My mouth is not a lone ranger. My ears aren't lone rangers. No, they're all attached, uh, attached to the same body. Uh, they, they are to dependent on being attached to the body. If you disattach my finger from my hand, my finger uh, may be independent, but it's soon dead because it has no more life flow, no more blood flow. So we're all dependent on one another. Unity in diversity. And all of us are to contribute to the whole. So as for the gifts that Paul mentions, let's, let's briefly describe them. Here they are. Prophecy. Prophecy is the um, Greek word prophetos, and it simply means communication of uh, revealed truth that builds up believers. Uh, Prophecy can refer to forthtelling, which is to declare truth, which is what I'm doing right now, or foretelling, uh, foretelling future events. Now, I got to tell you, in my study of Scripture, in my being around in the body of Christ uh, for a pretty long time, most of my life, I can tell you that the foretelling part of prophecy is the least manifested. I'm not saying it can't manifest and doesn't manifest, but it's the rarest type. Overwhelmingly, uh, the word prophecy manifests as forthtelling, um, sharing God's truth, declaring God's truth, preaching God's truth, proclaiming God's truth. That is the the overwhelming part of prophecy in our day. Then he says service. That's simply meeting or means uh, to meet uh, the needs of others, to help others. It's it's that simple. It's very practical. Uh, Deacons, for instance, uh, have the ministry of serving or meeting practical needs. Um, Teaching. Teaching for me is to provide guidance to provide moral instruction. It is to explain the meaning of scripture. And I do this, uh, I do this constantly. This is what I do uh, more than almost anything. I prophesy by foretelling God's truth and I teach by explaining God's truth. Uh, that's, that's my gift. I'm a one gift guy. I've got one gift and I try to work it every way that I can, but that's teaching is to take a verse of scripture or a, a text of scripture and open it up and explain it and pull out of it what God intended for us to get out of it, what God intended to tell us. It's not my reading into it what I want it to say, but me pulling out of it what God intended to say. And then there's giving, 
cheerfully contributing to the needs of others. Uh, you know, God blesses some people with uh, a lot of money, uh, a, a lot of material things, and I, I know people who have been blessed this way, and they love to give to others in the shadows with nobody knowing. They cheerfully contribute to the needs of others, and that's a spiritual gift, encouraging that just means comforting and exhorting others that it's not always going to be this way. Hey, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Let me exhort you to keep on going, keep on pressing into God. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Don't faint. The Lord's going to come through for you. That's encouraging. And then leadership. That means to lead in the execution of good works. Leadership. Now, as a pastor, I exercise leadership, but it's not my primary gift. Though I am a leader, I've always been a leader. I've always ended up in leadership positions without ever trying to get in leadership positions. But the bottom line is a leader leads people to a destination God has established uh, into good works. The leader leads God's people into doing uh, works that glorify him. Uh, leads them in a vision towards a desired end. That's what a leader does. And everybody who thinks they're a leader, you need to look behind you and see if anybody's following. And if you're a follower and you're following a leader, you need to be real sure you know he knows where he's going. But leadership is a spiritual gift. And then mercy, he mentions. Now, mercy is activities like feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, caring for the aging. It is that gift of mercy. When the per person with the gift of mercy, when they look at somebody that is hurting or in need, their heart wells up and they feel compassion towards them. And they want to do something uh, to alleviate their pain. And that's the gift of mercy. Now, next in verses 9 through 13, Paul delves into the realm of personal relationships. Let's go ahead and just skip through these. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. That means be genuine. Don't be phony or fake in your love, but be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Uh, that means knowing what to shun and knowing what to keep. Um, you know, we are literally to hate what is evil. We're to hate what God hates. Uh, God hates evil. God hates sin. Um, and we're to hate what God hates. And that is the devil and sin. But what is good and acceptable and God can smile on, uh, you know, as, as he said in Philippians 4, verse 8, whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, if there's any virtue in any praise, cling to those things. Think on those things, all right? Then he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Do you see how Paul is now in chapter 12 getting really uh, practical? Saying, I gave you all that heavy theology in the first 11 chapters. Now I'm giving you how to walk it out, how it ought to look, how the theology I gave you ought to be manifesting in this kind of fruit. All right? So kindly affection to one another with brotherly love, preferring one another. Now, I looked that up in the Message Bible, paraphrase, and he says this, be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Can you imagine preaching that in the corporate 
workplace out there in America, uh, practice playing second fiddle, you'd be laughed out of the boardroom. But that's what Jesus said. He that would be greatest among you, let him be servant of all. And here Paul is saying, prefer one another before yourself. Put others before yourself. That's love. All right? Continuing, verse 11, the Message Bible. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Uh, Here's the message. Keep the oil of the word in your lamp on a daily basis. Keep the oil of the word in your lamp um, on a daily basis. Don't burn out. Burn on. The only way you burn on without burning out is you keep the oil of that word. You have a daily time with God like We harp on constantly here at Turning Point that you've got to be in the Word every day. And if you do, I like this. If you keep your lamp filled with oil, you won't spoil. A lamp full of oil won't spoil. All right? Remember that. He says, be alert, servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. And then finally, verse 13 Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. In other words, be accessible. Now in verse 14, Paul's going to deal with something we all need to hear on a regular basis, myself as, as well as all of you. And here it is. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 14. Uh, he's saying don't drop to your enemy's level. Don't lower yourself to being like them. Blessing and praying for them will keep you and your spirit free. He says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Put another way, be happy for the happy. Don't let jealousy set in and hurt with the hurting. All right? If somebody's happy, be happy with them. If they're grieved, grieve with them. If if God really blesses them, don't be jealous, but rejoice with them. This is what Paul is saying, unity in diversity. Now, verse 16, get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't strut. Don't be proud. Don't be condescending. Don't look down on those who don't have a new car or a nice home or nice clothes. In other words, um, Be friendly to them. Befriend them. Lower yourself in your mind to fellowshipping with those who have less than you. That's what he's saying. Don't be stuck up. Don't be cliquish. Reach out to the lonely. Never consider yourself to be above somebody else because you're not. Because listen, the cross is the great equalizer. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Nobody Black, white, yellow, red, brown, nobody. Uh, No matter your pedigree, no matter where you live, how much money you make, what you drive, where you're from, how gifted you are, you're never better than anyone else. Never. Jesus died for all of us. He died for the poor, the rich, the black, the white, the gifted, the not so gifted, and we're all equal. He says again, verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. For the most part, give the wrongs others commit against you to God. Live at peace, verse 18, with everyone. 
as much as you possibly can. Make peace with others. The author of Hebrews wrote that we're to make every effort to live in peace with all men. Wow, this is a mouthful. This is a lot. But it's so good, is it not? Isn't this good stuff, what Paul is teaching us? And so now we come to the close. Verses 20 and 21. He says, don't insist on getting even. That is not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Verse 19, we are not to, that, that was verse 19. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. Instead, verse 20, our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go and buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, give him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. Isn't this good stuff? Well, let's just stand together and let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Let's lift our hands to the Lord and just bless him with me, would you? Let's just thank him. Father, we thank you for this rich, rich chapter, and we pray you would bless it now uh, to our hearts. Help us to walk it out. Help us to practice unity with diversity. Help us, Lord, to love one another sincerely. Help us to walk out this rich chapter of practical instruction. And Lord, as one body, we yield our bodies to God fully tonight. And we ask you, Lord, as we yield our bodies to you, let us experience that divine transformation that we are freer and freer and freer in Christ, bearing more and more fruit. And we thank you for it in his mighty name. Amen.